Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Global News anchor Donna Friesen is in Milton today. What's going on in that election race? Is a recession imminent? We'll talk about that. The Hamilton Community Foundation released their Vital Signs report and uh, some troubling information statistically for Hamilton. Also, hundreds showed up for a vigil for slain teenager Devin Selby. We'll talk to the people that attended that. It's all part of the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are one day closer to the federal election on October 21st, and not surprisingly, the economy is one of the key issues. Of course, it was talked about at great length in the uh, leaders' debate on Monday evening. Uh, to discuss the situation, uh, we're pleased to welcome uh, the anchor for Global National, Donna Friesen, who's actually uh, going to be on location. Donna, first of all, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Great to have you with us. Hey, my pleasure, Bill. Great to talk to you. Now, you're, you're, you're not in the studio today. You're in Milton today. Is that right? Yes, I love to get out of the studio. So we've been <laughs> going across the country to various places. Uh, and tonight we are in Milton, Ontario. We chose Milton because it's part of, uh, of course, greater Toronto area. And you know how important this area is in every federal election. I got to say it drives people in the rest of the country crazy that Ontario matters so much. But there are so many voters here and the area is so dynamic. So many new people are moving in. The demographics are changing. And so many of the ridings in the greater Toronto area are swing ridings. So, you know, I think a lot of people don't remember or maybe didn't know that in the last election, there were 70 ridings across the country that were decided by a razor thin margin of 5% or less. 28 of those were in Ontario, and about 10 of them were in the greater Toronto area. So they're swing ridings. They go back and forth. And Milton uh, was won by Lisa Raitt for the third time last, last in 2015, mm-hmm. but she won by just 4.9%. And I hear, I hear she's in a horse race this time, because the Liberals have a star candidate. She is, yeah, and they're, the Liberals are running. Uh, the people will know um, him from the Olympics. He's won four medals in the Olympics, uh, Adam Vancouverden. Yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, he's considered a, a star candidate there, very popular, a lot of name recognition. Um, and Lisa Raid is taking nothing for granted. Donna, when you were doing the leaders' debate the other day, the economy was uh, front and center for a good deal of that, and even some of the other topics that were discussed ended up going back to the economy because, I mean, it's so inextricably tied to just about everything else these days. Yeah. Uh, what, what are you hearing as you do go across the country from different places? You know, I'm hearing, actually, economy, but environment, too, and that's what we're hearing here. Um, we're, we're focused tonight on uh, sort of looking at affordability and cost of living, which I know is a huge issue for people every day. But there are also a lot of people telling us the first thing or second after that is the environment. And they want to know that political leaders are trying to tackle it, doing more to tackle it, believe it's significant. And what we're hearing from people is they're kind of confused over who has the best policy. It's a complex issue to try to understand. Hard to know who whose policies are really going to make a difference to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, apart from the Green Party, which is pretty explicit in what they're going to do and goes, you know, they go far beyond others. So, so that's what we're hearing. But also about affordability. You know, people who live, uh, you know, we talked to lots of people yesterday who were hopping on the go train early in the morning to get to work in Toronto and um, their you know their cost of commuting of transit of uh, their mortgage of childcare, massive costs for people and um, that's certainly what's on their mind and we heard that obviously from the leaders on, on Monday night because they seem to be focusing an awful lot of that basically and I guess the phrase we always use in elections is pocketbook issues uh, how much money you make how much money you have to put out every month and it's uh, it's becoming problematic for more and more Canadians 
It is. And um, it's, it doesn't really match with the statistics that you look at. You know, that unemployment uh, is at a near record low in this country. The economy is growing when Justin Trudeau says that. He is right. In August, there were 81,000 new jobs across the country. And that brought the overall unemployment rate, you know, to the about, I think, the lowest it's been in years. The amount of jobs, new jobs that were created was a record annual gain um, that hasn't been seen since 2003. So there are new jobs, the economy is growing, but a lot of people just don't feel it. And I wonder if part of it is because so many people are so much in debt. The amount of household debt that we're carrying is at record levels too. You know, we're borrowing to live. And a big part of that is coming through mortgage payments and rent payments and childcare. Well, the Milton writing, uh, where you are right now, of course, and you'll be broadcasting Global National from tonight, I think is, is probably a microcosm of just about everything we've talked about over the last couple of minutes because housing prices are a major factor there. Uh, commuting and public transit is a major factor. And, and I know that technically that's a per, supposed to be a provincial a piece of legislation, but uh, municipalities, as you've been reporting, for a couple of years now, Donna, municipalities have been screaming at the federal government for a national transportation plan and money from the federal government to filter down into public transit. Yeah, that is so true. And you really see it here. I know people live this every day. You know, the commute is just crazy. And um, the, the GO train is packed. The highways are packed. So clearly there's an issue here. And the way Milton is growing, I, I went out to some of the new developments and it is uh, astounding. I mean, we heard that there are something like 4,500 new residents in Milton in the last six months. So uh, it's growing, um, you know, faster than, um, than political leaders can keep up with it. And you know what else is interesting? We talked to a number of people who are not loyal to parties. They're switching their votes. A number of people who voted conservative uh, for Stephen Harper, voted liberal because they believed in Justin Trudeau, are now switching back to the conservatives or giving up on those two parties and moving to the Green Party. And that includes the older demographic. We talked to a lot of older people who are really concerned about the environment because they say they have children and grandchildren and they want a party who's really going to take action on that. So I think it's a pretty dynamic electorate um, you know, in terms of where they're going to place their vote. But I think there's also a lot of kind of, uh, I, I, I want to describe it as like lack of enthusiasm um, for the main parties, uh, the liberals and the conservatives. And I guess maybe that's what we're cons- seeing reflected in the polls because they're pretty much even. Exactly. Right? And I mean, I, I, I'm thinking the leaders are probably hoping they don't put none of the above on the ballot because that may end up being the most popular vote. Yeah. A lot of people are just kind of throwing their hands up and saying, I don't know what to do. It's, it's probably going to be a, a ballot box decision for an awful lot of people. It may be. It may be. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what the parties in this, the, what Lisa Ray told me, and she's, you know, experienced at this, she said she thinks after Thanksgiving, when people are, you know, if they're lucky enough to be home with family and friends, they will be discussing this and making some firm decisions. So we may find out more, more about, you know, where the polls are going after that. Donna, it's been very insightful as you've been going across the country telling us about how Canadians are reacting to this, and we look forward to uh, tonight as Global National Broadcast uh, Live from Milton. Thanks so much for this today. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Donna Friesen, of course, uh, from Global National, 6.30 tonight, of course, uh, in this area, uh, to see her uh, reporting and the whole newscast from there as well. So what about the economy? I mean, it, it does seem front and center for an awful lot of people, and as Donna mentioned, there are other issues that are tied to that, but it really comes down to 
Yeah, for instance, the environment. We want a better environment. Of course we do. We have to do something about climate change. But how much is it going to cost me? Uh, yeah, we need something to do with daycare because millennials need that sort of thing. But how much is it going to cost me? On and on it goes. Uh, we are concerned about this. And then we start hearing reports time and time again that, as Donna mentioned, even though the economic indicators are looking pretty good right now, we're not feeling it. An awful lot of Canadians just aren't feeling it. So what's going on here? I want to bring Michael Veal into the conversation, professor with the Department of Economics at uh, McMaster University here in Hamilton. Michael, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, as I was just mentioning with Donna Friesen from Global National, we, we look at the numbers, we look at the statistics, our, our political leaders are telling us that, no, you know what, we're doing pretty good. This, this is up, this is up, this is down. Uh, and we're saying, well, how come I'm not feeling much better off? Well, what's, what's going on here? Why the anomaly? So averages can be one thing, but of course averages can feel a lot of variation. And so it's quite possible for the average number to be up and yet not being so good for a number of people. So... so the numbers may tell a great story, but we're talking about, you know, this is a ground level. What's it doing to us right now? Uh, and there's an awful lot of Canadians that are in, in a rather precarious financial position. Why are we living paycheck to paycheck? Because we, we were taught since we were young people, Michael, that, look, you've got to put some money aside. You've got to live within your means. Uh, we've gotten a little crazy here, and, and we're finding ourselves deeper and deeper in debt almost every month. So there's a couple of reasons. One is that if you look at last year, the average hourly earnings were up 3.6%, and that compares to inflation just under 2%, and that seems pretty good. But, of course, if you didn't get a raise in the last year, uh, then you're 2% down. The, the inflation has hit you, and you haven't got a compensating increase on the income side. Uh, but I think the other thing very special to hear is, of course, what's happened with housing prices. Hmm. And while they haven't been going up quite as fast lately, if you look over the last five years, Housing prices in this area increased by uh, more than 50%. So that is very damaging to somebody who doesn't have a house uh, and is trying to get into that market. For people who already have houses, that might be good news. But, of course, they still need a house, and maybe they're worried about, say, their children who are trying to get into the housing market. Uh, and, of course, the, the style of housing, the kinds of housing, and, and location, location, location. And, if, uh, for instance, as Donna was just mentioning, for people that work in the GTA, for instance, and can't afford a place there, they're pl- living in places like Hamilton and Milton and trying to do the commute every day. So all of these issues seem to be tied together. And all of a sudden we're into a transit issue and, and, a, and a commuting issue, et cetera, and things of this nature. What about, what about the debt load? Uh, I mean, that's, that's something that we've been talked to about and, and you know, warned about, but uh, we just seem to be getting deeper and deeper. And I guess housing is probably the main reason for that. Yeah, I'm less concerned about the debt load per se uh, in that uh, interest rates are also very low. And so people can support a much higher debt load than historically they could. Uh, but, of course, it does tie back into the housing prices. One of the reasons that housing prices are so high is that interest rates are so low. And so you sort of get a break on the interest rates. But, of course, looking forward to the housing price that you might have to pay, uh, it's a pretty uh, imposing task for many people. Let's talk about some extraneous factors, because the other thing that we keep hearing about in, uh, in both uh, the Canadian and U.S. coverage of what's going on economically is uh, the R word. Uh, we know that psych- from a cyclical standpoint, Michael, uh, you know, the, there are going to be recessions from time to time, and I think the average is, what, every seven or eight years or something like that. It's been a while since we've had one. Are, are we, uh, is, is it imminent? Because there seem to be some indicators that say we might be leaning in that direction. Well, I always go back to this statement that's attributed to Yogi Berra that it's really dangerous to predict, particularly about the future. And, and, you know, I think it's just really hard to know what's going to happen in this. I personally don't think a recession is any more likely in the next six months to a year than it normally is. I don't see the, the, the danger signs the way some other people see them. Uh, but, of course, it always can happen. 
Uh, a lot of discussion has been about this so-called inverted yield curve, which yeah. means that the interest rates are, are, are predicted to go down. And if interest rates are predicted to go down, well, why might the market think that? Well, the market might think that, that there's going to be a recession, and that leads interest rates to fall. Uh, but they are very low interest rates, and this is a kind of a new type of monetary policy we haven't experienced. That, so if you're talking about short-term interest rates being, say, 1.5% and, and long-term interest rates being just barely over 1%, uh, those are very low interest rates. So I think the greater danger is that maybe we could get a, an uptick in interest rates, and that might put some people in some trouble. What, about the recession to go, I want to ask you about that again, because as you say, you, you're looking at indicators, and I think we all are in one way or another. And I still go back to, I guess it was 2008, 2009, uh, where the Prime Minister at the time and the Finance Minister said, no, no, we're in good shape, and then bingo, without, without much notice at all, I guess, especially from the people that are supposed to be looking at these things, we were in the depths of a recession. Uh, do these things, if I can use a storm metaphor here, do they sneak up on you? Can you see the dark clouds on the horizon, or is this like a, 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 you know, a tornado that just kind of comes out of nowhere, and there it is, and then you're in trouble? Well, I think it's, it's more the latter, but like 2008, uh, the real danger isn't in Canada. The problem is, is that Canada is a small economy in a big world, and there are some danger signs in the world's level. The, the U.S.-China conflict continues in, in terms of trade, uh, and that's bad news for the world economy. And uh, also, uh, Brexit is not particularly good news for the world economy. And those two major sources of uncertainty, uh, and in addition the fact that the United States has been running very large deficits, much, much larger on a per capita basis than Canada, and we don't know how much longer that can continue in a sustainable fashion, those worries uh, are the worries of, of Canada. Uh, the question is, can we navigate them or not? Speaking of trade deals, obviously we know about the Chinese-U.S. situation, and of course Brexit. We've been talking about that at great length, and and, and that's some, uh, obviously a great concern. What about trade between our two countries, though? I mean, there was a new trade deal hashed out between Canada and the United States. It's not been ratified by either government as of yet. Uh, so obviously we're, the status quo is being maintained right here. But how important is it for us to develop those stronger ties with the United States market? Well, I, I think we've done about as well as we can there. I think the new agreement is on on balance, on a little bit worse than the old agreement, but it could have been a lot worse. And so I think we dodged a bullet there. Uh, if the new agreement ever comes in, I don't think we'll be in great trouble. At the moment, it doesn't look like the new agreement's going to come in at all. I do think we have to recognize that whoever wins the White House uh, in 2020, we, there's going to be issues. Uh, the trade issue is going to continue to persist. And uh, the main reason is actually related to the United States fiscal policy. It turns out if the government in the United States wants to borrow lots of money, it almost always is going to imply that the United States is going to be in a trade deficit. And as long as they're going to be in a trade deficit, they're going to be looking at their trade partners uh, for more what are called concessions. And so this file is going to be with us forever. But, of course, it always has been. Canada's always had to worry about its relationship with the United States, and that will just continue. Hey, I guess one of the other things we need to be cognizant of here is that Donald Trump is not the only protectionist down there. Uh, and, and on both sides of the aisle there, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, it's going to be an ongoing concern. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, Michael, always a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much for your insight. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. That's Michael Veal, of course, Professor of Economics from McMaster University here in Hamilton. And again, don't forget Donna Friesen will be broadcasting from uh, Milton tonight with Global National at 6.30 to bring us up to speed on there. And that's an interesting race. I know from the economic standpoint, there's many, many stories here. But from the political standpoint, uh, the uh, incumbent Lisa Raitt uh, being challenged by Adam Vancouverton, uh, the former Olympic uh, athlete, of course, uh, rower, who went to McMaster University here in Hamilton, in fact. 
Uh, and they say that that's a, a neck-and-neck race right now, as are many other races uh, right across the country. And uh, Donald talked about some of the swing ridings that are going up there. They go from one party to another, from election to election. So it's still very much up in the air. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that and keep you posted as we get uh, some more of those numbers in the next little while. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Community Foundation has come out with the uh, Vital Signs Report, uh, their annual Vital Signs Report. It's been released, and uh, it shows that there is uh, increasing hospitalizations for mental health and substance abuse. There's some some good news in here, some encouraging news in this, but some very troubling statistics uh, that we want to delve into in the next little while. Joining us to talk about this is, uh, of course, uh, Terry Cook from the Hamilton Community Foundation. Mr. Cook, good to see you again. Hey, Bill. Nice to see you. you, you, you this is election time. You're, you're the sort of guy that's always knocking on doors. It's, it's really cruel and unusual that in this new role I'm not able to participate but yeah, uh, hey that's good we can sit behind you, the you glass can, and you can still you're in, second the stand, in the stands watching and uh, our good friend dr elizabeth richardson the uh, medical officer of health here for the city of hamilton good to see you again doctor good morning bill good to see you too as you looked at these stats let me start with you on this uh the thing that jumps out at me here is mental health and psychiatric issues the fourth leading cause of hospitalizations in hamilton uh, what what story does that tell you well, you know, we've got some really talented people who work with us who play with these numbers and put things together. And when they look at it and looked at both, you know, causes of death and looked at causes of illness, you can see two particular issues coming out at, of the data. And that's showing that uh, unintentional injury. So we're talking about overdoses from drugs and uh, opioids, all sorts of different uh, drugs are in that category, as well as self-harm amongst our youngest uh, members of our society, particularly young women, are two of the biggest issues that we're facing here today. And, and we've heard about these anecdotally, Terry, over the number of years. We know about uh, about teen suicides tragically, and we know about stress and, and some of the things that teens are dealing with right now. Uh, this is, is really kind of a verification of what we thought was an ongoing problem here. Yeah, and frankly, those of us who have teenagers and who listen to the stories that come home from schools and we're living through a particularly tragic and awful week in Hamilton on that front are, I think, mindful of, of the prevalence of mental illness and addiction, particularly in its impacts on our young people and their future. So it is very much a signal that we need to pay attention to this and, and find ways to, to intervene and support early and often. Doctor, when we see numbers like this, and, and I don't know if it's justifiable to call this a spike, but there, there's an, a, a very concerning increase here. Uh, is it because it's more prevalent or is it being diagnosed now where it wasn't before? Well, it's also a good question. And we think it's a little bit of both. That certainly as we become more willing to talk about mental illness, when we talk more about uh, substance use and addiction and the realities that these are chronic diseases that p affect people's lives in the long term, we know that people are coming forward more. We know that people are getting diagnosed more. But there's no doubt in my mind that this is also an increasing in rates. And so we see this across the board, whether we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about mood disorders like depression, we're talking about about self-harm, as we've talked about when we're talking about overdoses and drugs, uh, drug hospitalizations and those sorts of things, we're definitely seeing increases in those as well. What about support services? I, I mean, this, this is a great report to give you a foundation to say, here's what we need to do going forward. This is, and this is going to be an important tool to, to be able to develop those uh, support services. So <coughs> when we're talking about service, absolutely. And, you know, we've d talked already this morning about uh, what happened up in uh, 
in the high school and uh, on the mountain, and we have seen you know significant issues. We've really got a crisis on our hands when it comes to mental health, particularly amongst self-harming kids, particularly amongst uh, in terms of drug use and opioids and those sorts of things. And so we need to respond to that. We need services that respond to those issues. Absolutely. So whether it's care in the community or it's hospital beds or it's eMERGE care, it's working better. And this is where actually the Hamilton Health Team, which mm-hmm. is part of the Ontario Health Team application, comes in. They too have identified mental health amongst adults and children as a priority. And how can we work better, be more integrated, more coordinate, coordinated in our care? We also, though, need to look upstream. There's some serious signals that have been going on now for several years about concerns here. When we're looking at, there's an instrument we use to uh, look at development of kids and see how ready they are for school. And we've seen that we have 31% of our kids are vulnerable and that on the social emotional scale, that's increased over the last year or the last survey. We also have seen these increasing rates of, of drug use. These all talk about, you know, what's going on in our society. What's the context behind them that's preventing us from helping kids to develop resilience, from helping them to develop the emotional skills to have good, positive, healthy relationships, to be able to cope? And what are we doing as a society in terms of making it a healthy place to uh, live and grow? How do you, how do you drill down and, and, and find some of the root causes? I mean, this, this paints a picture right now, and and, it, and that's concerning in and of itself. But obviously, as you say, to find the solutions, we got to get down to the, the root causes. Absolutely. And there's there's really good research out there about those root co- causes. We know a lot of this is about the cycle of poverty. We know that things like housing, income, Absolutely. those things, poverty affects mental health. And then, of course, poor mental health affects your ability to get through school, your ability to earn income, get a good job, all of those sorts of things. So there's definitely a cycle that's ongoing there that we need to intervene in. We also need to look at what else we know about growing up. And we know that things that are traumatic in people's lives, especially when they're young kids, if we don't get in there and help people to understand how to manage those things, how to cope with them, mitigate um, issues that go on, that they are too going to have these significant problems as we as we move forward. So there's really good work that's going on. We're fortunate to have a wonderfully integrated and coordinated early years group that has been working on this now for 20 years and looking at how we can help kids get off to a good start and support parents parents in that. Terry, I want to get you to explain exactly the role of the Hamilton Community Foundation in this. Uh, and, and this, this, I, is, this I, is only I one will, report. But, but can I yeah, just in, segue because um, Elizabeth has identified something uh, that also is spoken to in the report, which is we've talked about young people. There's also a piece in there about millennials and precarious work and, yeah. and the, the extent to which that affects mental health and well-being. And, and I think we need to pay attention to these non-medical issues that Dr. Richardson has identified. The need for stable, dignified, decent housing, the importance of universal basic income, uh, the need to provide uh, supports to people that, that would go well beyond what you would see at the emergency ward. I mean, this is stuff that, that really matters to the well-being of people across the age spe- spectrum and across all of our geography. Well, and we've all heard stories from the people that are in that in that precarious situation. Yeah. You know, you're not sure. You're on a contract, so you're not sure if you're going to have a job next year. You probably don't have benefits. How are you going to do that? What mm-hmm. if your child gets sick? On and on it goes. That puts immense pressure on, a, on an individual. For sure. Uh, to the role of the yeah, well, community cause, foundation? Because yeah, sure. I want you to spotlight the, the foundation's work in this. And this is this is a great vital signs report that you do, but the foundation's been uh, intricate 
intricately involved in identifying problems and looking for root solutions here in this community sure. for a long time now. So let me start by acknowledging the work of our partnership. So the, this, this really is a, a partnership that uh, extends well beyond the confines of the Community Foundation. Uh, the Public Health Department, Dr. Richardson's team have been extraordinary partners. This is not original data. It's from a range of different sources. But what we do is, is vet it and synthesize it with subject experts. Uh, our role is to identify the, the, the challenging issues to Hamilton's trajectory across the board and to use the $200 million endowment that we have been lucky enough to have received since 1954 to try and make a difference. And oftentimes that is in partnership with different folks. And and one of the neat stories this year, I'll, I'll signal out one specific donor group, Green Shield Canada, uh, who have a large footprint nationally but also have a presence locally through a pharmacist named Marita Zafiro who happened to sit on our board injected a million dollars into six foundations across the country, Hamilton being one. Half of that money has gone to partnerships with public health around mental health early interventions. And uh, I can't say enough about when you're able to take a single dollar, philanthropic dollar, and leverage it with other supports from government and business, you can make a profound difference when you're looking at the evidence and, and working collaboratively. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Well, it's obviously going to take take a community to, to resolve some of these problems. For and, sure. And to, and to have this data is extremely important to do that. Uh, when we talk about substance abuse, Doctor, invariably, I think we, the first image we get conjured up is, is, like you say, opioids, because it's in the news. I mean, we almost hear daily now stories about this. But there, this is not a new issue, a substance abuse. And the two longstanding issues that we've always talked about, and you've addressed them many times in the program, uh, alcohol and tobacco uh, consumption. And I, and I don't want to say abuse, because even if, if, if you're touching tobacco at all, it's abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, but alcohol consumption has been an ongoing concern, too. What's this report tell you about that? Well, the good news is, of course, the tobacco front, where we've mm -hmm. continued to see rates drop. And we now have you know, a huge majority of kids who have never tried smoking, who don't intend to start smoking. And that is just great news. Mm -hmm. Of course, the concerning thing on that front is about vaping. And so we are, you know, definitely concerned about that. We're concerned about what we're seeing primarily out of the United States around, you know, we now have a thousand people who've become ill with vaping related illness, 18 deaths. And we've now had uh, two cases in, in Canada related to that. So that's a big concern. So absolutely, we're saying, please don't use vapes. Um, you know, some people are using them as a smoking cessation tool, and we know that that's a valid use for them. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have to use them, make sure you're getting them from a place that, um, you know, is a... Uh, a retail distributor not getting it from your friends or not making up things to put in it or that sort of thing making sure that that's well supplied but uh, from a tobacco standpoint great impacts and we certainly in expect to see the impacts in terms of rates of cancer heart disease you know respiratory disease over the coming years as a result alcohol is one of our greatest concerns mm -hmm. and it's a tough one you know we often get accused of being a bit of the killjoys in public health because we talk about the the downside of mm -hmm. these things and and, you know, when we're talking about any of those legal substances like cannabis, like alcohol, our emphasis on using them safely. We have 3,000 people who uh, visit emergency departments related to alcohol every year. We have 900 hospitalizations from things, you know, mostly related to injuries such as traffic accidents and that sort of thing. 
Um, but we are really emphasizing that safe use. We have 48% of people who are using alcohol above the low risk drinking guidelines. That's a big concern. You know, looking at your use, how can you use safely, bring that use down, make sure, you know, when if you're using cannabis, using it with other people and delaying first use. It's really hard amongst our teens. Again, we're back mm-hmm. to our teens. When we're talking about cannabis, we're talking about alcohol. Their brains are developing well into their early, early 20s. And if they're using substances, then they're damaging their brains permanently and not reaching their full potential. So we're really encouraging use to be delayed until after they're about 25. Terry, in some of the previous reports that uh, the foundation has sponsored uh, through Vital Signs, we found that uh, some of those numbers that the doctor's referring to are, are, are tied to income levels. I mean, it's oh, just, without a doubt. And, and, and that's something that you've signaled out years now. And, uh, uh, and it, it's a troubling factor, but it's something that needs to, to, to be addressed, I think, when we look at this. Yeah, if I have And it's not an inner city problem. It's, it's a Hamilton problem. No, it, it, it's a broadly based it, it is across the spectrum but let's face it uh, Canadian cities which historically I think have outperformed our counterparts especially south of the border on a whole bunch of different measures increasingly are looking at, at pictures of segregated poverty and segregated affluence that's not good for social capital it's not good for the way in which we function it's not good from a planning standpoint and it certainly isn't good when you look at educational and health outcomes and and I think we need to be thinking about that so that's an issue that isn't solely in the purview of a foundation or the medical officer of health but it's certainly the responsibility of city councils and provincial governments when they look at health and housing policy. And if I can come back to the addictions and mental health for a minute, we are at a critical pivot point in the future of healthcare in this community and this province. And one of the things that I'm heartened by that I would actually ask uh, Elizabeth Richardson to talk about is the prominence given to early intervention and to uh, addictions and mental health in the planning around the new Ontario health team as it relates to services and delivery and integration in this community. Because I think that it's a unique opportunity and we need to get it right. Well, the government, the provincial government, that is, doctor, has signaled that there's going to be major change here, and and, uh, that's got a lot of us antsy, and I think justifiably so, and we've talked about that at great length on the program. But I guess if you want to use the the glasses half full approach, it's an opportunity to to revamp and, and to, to retool and, and perhaps even improve the, the delivery of health care. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we know we've got an issue in terms of our health system in Ontario, and so there needs to be some changes. And abs- we've in the community been working together for several years. Terry had chaired a committee uh, before that called the Community Health Working Group that was mm-hmm. looking at how we could better integrate. We've been doing that for a few years. We've been working as Hale, the Anchor mm-hmm. Institution Leadership Group, about how could we make a difference. And so absolutely the leaders in the health system and the community agencies across uh, Hamilton have come together to talk about how can we better integrate, how can we better um, support people in their in their needs as they're uh, they're living them out here in Hamilton. So the focus is on three different things. One is about people who have complex medical needs, so especially seniors. What can we do to support them? This and the other two populations are again mental health adults and mental health in uh, and addictions in children. And so the opportunities to come together and build off the great work that has already been going on and look at how we can move forward and we're looking on three different levels one is how can we intervene earlier and this Mm -hmm. is the piece that terry just talked about we've been talking about this again for 20 years in the early years uh, group what was best start before them how can we 
help support parents earlier in terms of parenting and the needs they have, but also detect issues when they're going awry earlier. And so mm-hmm. there's been a, a huge focus on that. We'll continue to do that. We're also looking at how can people transition from hospital to home better um, and have community supports in place. And for kids as well, part of the challenge is that on the mental health and addictions front is there's kind of two systems. There's the children's system and the adult system. So they're really looking at how can we integrate there too. And then the other is the piece about geographic areas in the city. Are there parts of the city where we need to collaborate better to support people? And uh, we'll be working on that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a couple of minutes left. We'd, I want to go back to addictions for a second because there's another part of this that's covered uh, in the report here that uh, that I think is enlightening and maybe something that kind of goes under the radar a little bit. Uh, and that's computer use. Uh, addiction to computers. Uh, those numbers are on the increase, and that's not a good sign. Yeah, those are on the increase. And, you know, we've known for a long time from the standpoint of physical activity and healthy lifestyles, sure. eating well, that screen time is not a good thing, and we need mm-hmm. to limit that in any given day. And you see a surprising number of people who are, particularly youth, who are on social media more than five hours a day, who are on some sort of screen device, you know, more than five hours a day. We don't have a lot of research around that issue now, but it's absolutely one that's been concerning us on a number of different funds. And we know the, there's sort of emerging ideas around addiction to gaming, addi- addiction to social media, and those sorts of things. And so, again, it's one of those fronts where doing that kind of thing for five hours a day isn't good on any front. Um, you know, in fact, my, my now 21-year-old son came home after starting computer science at university and said, Mom, do you know how unhealthy it is to sit in front of a ske- screen in a dark room by yourself all day? <laughs> I was like, great, good for you, yeah. you know, and he's, he's made revelation. that change. What a re- revelation. <laughs> so we don't need to wait for the studies to say that's not how we should be spending our time all day. We need to have connections. Social connection mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the absolute keys to good mental health. And, and it's, it's like I say, it's not a new story, but one that we don't often talk about. And it's uh, we used to look at it from that realm that, well, you should be outside running around and getting air, phys- which is true. You still should be doing that. But there are some physical uh, problems when you stay right at the screen all the time. And we do it all the time at work anyway. And, you know, I, I, I like to be able to get up and walk away once, once an hour here just to kind of get my face off that for a little bit. Not everybody else has that luxury and it can have a negative impact on you, even the, the light from the screen. Uh, physical problems, psychological problems, it's, it's all related, isn't it? That's right, that's right. Uh, it's a fabulous report, very insightful report. I assume it's on the webpage there? It's all over the webpage. Obviously, uh, shout out to Steve Buse, Paul Burton, the folks in the Hamilton Spectator. We're hosting a big event there tonight. Uh, if you'd like to join us, Dr. Richardson and other practitioners will be on the panel to answer questions and have a dialogue. Uh, just call ahead and register if you can because we're approaching being sold out, but I think there are a few seats left. Uh, CBC Hamilton has covered it extensively, but obviously if you go to the Hamilton Community Foundation website, uh, you will find all of the data, the backdrop, the methodology, and uh, you'll also find some ways in which we would encourage folks to get involved, because really at the end of the day, this is about how do you engage a community and call forth the best efforts from everybody, whether you're a medical expert, uh, an elected official, or frankly a citizen who cares and wants to make a difference. Okay, so with that limited time you're going to be on your computer, make sure you go to that web page and get all that information. It's called Vital Signs, a reflection of Hamilton. Uh, Terry Cook, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, thanks so much for being here and thanks for the great work that you're both doing and your organizations. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what happened last night, uh, of course, at Winston Churchill Secondary School in the east end of the city. There was a candlelight vigil, of course, and it was a well, to show support for the, the family uh, after the brutal murder of a 14-year-old, Devin Selvey, 
who was murdered uh, just by the uh, Churchill property earlier this week. Uh, hundreds showed up last night. You heard the report from CHMO's Ken Mann just a little while ago. Uh, we're going to give you a couple of different angles on this about some of the things that we've heard so far, and I understand that investigations are ongoing. But it was uh, it was very emotional last night on the school grounds. Uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, Power Group Communications, uh, was among the people there. Laura, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad we got some time to explain exactly what happened. Uh, but, uh, you took the, you took your family to this thing last night, didn't you? Yeah, my kids wanted to go. Uh, they uh, took the news of this of their heart, as I'm sure many, many kids did in Hamilton and across this country. And when we had a discussion about it after school yesterday, I let them know that there was a vigil and they immediately wanted to go. So we made a point of going down there and we're so glad that we did, though. I can't remember when I've experienced something like that, even as a reporter when I would cover different things of this nature. There was just something about last night, the fact that it was grassroots organized, the, all the beautiful cars that were brought uh, for blocks and blocks to honor Devin and his love of cars, and uh, just the feeling of the community that uh, we cannot take this anymore. I heard so many families talking about how they have struggled to get support from the school board uh, and people's general sense of frustration with what's been happening in the city. There was just it was palpable a sense of uh, need for a real change and that this just cannot continue the way that it has been. Laura, when we heard the news earlier this week about the murder, because uh, I, I see you posted some stuff on, on Twitter about this and on Facebook, uh, tell me about the conversation you had to have with your two kids about what happened, because they had questions. Yeah, and my son has been bullied for years. Um, and even when he started a new school this year that was much more supportive, he's still kids from the old school were pushing him down repeatedly on the, you know, on the schoolyard. Uh, he has uh, a learning disability and, um, uh, you know, and, and ADHD and has trouble sometimes with communicating in under pressure like that. And, you know, I, I think it, there's no, obviously, we should not be bullying anybody. I think kids who... Um, are maybe a little bit different or exceptional are also, you know, vulnerable to getting bullied. But the problem with his experience with this is that it has been years and years of advocating through the school board to get support, to get things taken seriously. Even my daughter in her class would have to evacuate on emergency evacuations because she'd get hit with chairs and things thrown in her back and, you know, just for being in the classroom when she was in grade one and grade three. This is really uh, a crisis bill, and I have reached out to media over the years saying, is anyone looking into the state of Hamilton schools and this, this seeming inability or unwillingness to really tackle the problem? And so uh, my kids um, felt as though this, uh, this was terrible, but they weren't surprised that, this, that uh, Devin's family had gone and asked for help and had reported things and that sort of nothing was really done to protect them. And I have had to pick up my son. Uh, several times, uh, several times a week, sometimes over the years from school, just like Devin's mom did when he was being bullied, and the, the thought of him Daryl getting in the car and being stabbed to death while he's getting in the car is uh, absolutely devastating. So my kids' questions were: How is this going to change? What are they going to do differently? Are they actually going to start suspending people? And, and after the vigil last night, Daryl posted a video which has been seen thousands and thousands of times, uh, where he said, "Can we?" Can we find the students? Can we find the families? Can people go to jail for assault? You know, the kids know, Bill, 
that this isn't working. And I spoke with a group of parents last night, and, uh, you know, their feelings were that no one will ever listen and really advocate. So I'm very disturbed by the whole thing, and I found the comments from the school board uh, initially saying that they hadn't failed the students, uh, hadn't failed Devin and his family. Outrageous. Of course they failed him. He died. I, I'm not. I'm not surprised by the comments from both your son and your daughter because I, I've had the pleasure of knowing them for many years, and they're both very opinionated. I don't know where they get that from, but uh, that's. Uh, <laughs> but but what about you as a mother there, Laura? Last night, what was going through your head? You know, um, my what was going through my head was just if you saw the families that were there, Bill. If you saw. Just the um, feeling of both community in the sense that there was this real sense of love. I mean, uh, there you know there was the Templar motorcycle group had you know rows and rows of their motorcycles and and they were there supporting the family and and any kids that were being bullied. There was this real sense of the community doing what it could in in the absence of of leadership. There the comments that were made from the podium about, you know what, we'll stop this ourselves, everybody, you know, they won't ignore us anymore, stop bullying when you see it. And they had the whole crowd yell out, stop. Uh, so uh, so it was, I was very mixed as a parent, because on the one hand, I thought, how amazing and wonderful and beautiful that so many people, I've never seen a rally so large in this city, showed up uh, in to support this child and his family. And it was almost as though his mother was being lifted by love. I mean, she hadn't been able to close her eyes in two days because she would see her son die. Uh, and, and so she was exhausted and she was being held up by the love of the crowd, which was beautiful. But there's also this really terribly tragic sense, Bill, as a parent, that it had come to this. Uh, that that they had done everything right. They had gone to the school board. They'd gone to police, you know, and they still were failed. Uh, and I asked this morning on Twitter if the city leadership was there because I, by the time I could get there, there was so much traffic, I missed what I thought were the formal speeches. And apparently they weren't invited because the family, at least from what I'm being told, and, and you would know better, um, you know, perhaps they weren't wanted there because the family had been failed. So we have a real crisis in this city, and we have a crisis with how our school board is handling bullying and harassment and assault. Uh, there are many, 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 many stories about it. Uh, myself as a parent can vouch for them. But, but as a parent, and as, as you've told us, uh, who, both of your kids have experienced this in one way, shape, or form over, yep. over the years. It, was there a sense of there but for the grace of God go I? I mean, you know, this is bullying that went to the extreme. Bill, I uh, I, I think you're aware I had to do a panel yesterday yeah. on another station. Yeah. And uh, I had a panic attack on the air. A producer had to hug me in the hallway because just talking about it. Um, of course. I mean, of co- I'm, you know what, there's no... I Of course I'm lucky when I've had to pick up my son um, from school because he's being bullied and uh, and, you know, I pick him up in the car. Of course it could have happened to Darrow or any of our kids. There are so many parents who have gotten these phone calls, come and get your kid. And you ask, well, what happened to the person who, who did this? Oh, well, you know, they've been sent home or they haven't been sent home or we're talking to their parents. or And then this ridiculous process, Bill, where they, they have the kid have to sit in the office with the bully and the two of them have to kind of work it out. I understand as a communication specialist the goal to have people resolve conflict, but this is not a situation where two 
executives are having a disagreement and having a hard time articulating their points of view and assertively communicating. These are kids who are being systematically bullied and having to sit there in the office. The bully might get a day off, you know, goes home, comes back the next day, and it, it picks right back up. It, it's just not working. Uh, it's not working by any metric. And uh, the school board has got to stop saying zero tolerance. They don't enforce the rules that they currently have. And, and to the video Daryl posted, those rules don't work anyway because the bullies just get a day off, play some video games, come back, and it's worse. i got, uh, I got so to ask you, I'm just about out of time more. here, but yeah. you posted something this morning, which I think is something your son Daryl told you. Maybe the word bully is too benign. Maybe, maybe that's part of the problem. He suggested another word. Well, it's assault. Yeah, it's assault. which is what it it's, is. It's, it's criminal harassment and assault. And as long as we use the euphemism of bullying, it sounds like something that, you know, we used to deal with in the 1970s where people are like, nanny, nanny, you know, uh, it's not what it is. Someone was stabbed to death in front of their mother. And uh, there's so many incidents of violence in our schools, Bill, that it would make most people absolutely shocked. So the vigil last night was beautiful, and I'm so pleased and proud that Hamiltonians came out. But we have to demand that the school board fix this. We have to demand more from our civic leaders. Laura Babcock from Power Group, uh, thanks for sharing your stories with us. Uh, I guess we all want to go thanks. home and give the kids a hug right now. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Laura. Uh, so what about the protocol? And I understand, as we t- said at the beginning of our session here, that uh, th- there are ongoing investigations. But I wanted to bring Alex Johnstone in. She, of course, is the chairman of the board for the Hamilton District, uh, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. And uh, Alex, thank you. Uh, uh, very busy and a very emotional time. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Good morning, Bill. One of the things that, and Laura Babcock just mentioned this, but I've heard it from so many other people that have come forward after the the story, the terrible story about uh, Devin Selvey and his murder, that said, look, at the school board has a role here. And I talked to Manny, of course, about this, uh, just make figure out the other day, just the day after we heard the news about this. But this consensus I'm hearing from a lot of parents, Alex, and I'm sure you're getting the same sorts of phone calls and emails, is zero tolerance is not really zero tolerance. That There should be more being done by the board themselves, the schools themselves about this. Uh, how do you respond to that? You know, Bill, it's, it's so tragic what happened, um, what happened this past week to Devin. Um, it's impacted not only the Churchill School community, but all of our schools and all this entire city, uh, we've been receiving comments from across the province. This is a story, this is a situation that has impacted all of us. And I think the reason why it's impacted so many is because we've all gone through experiences of bullying uh, to, to some extent at one point in our life, either as, as kids or as adults in the workplace. Bullying is an issue that happens, uh, that is, it's, profound it happens everywhere and I think that you know last night we had so many of our trustees attending the vigil mourning with the community and the community is right we do need to be doing something as a school system but also our wider communities and across the province and I think that that's where and I did watch Laura Babcock's son's video um it is it is bullying, but it's also violence in our schools and naming it as such, uh, naming it as violence in our communities. Um, I know our, ma- our director, Manny Figueredo, had spoken about how our schools are also a reflection of the society at large. And that's where it's been so overwhelming, the outpour of support from community organizations looking to get involved. And that's exactly what, what needs to happen. The school boards absolutely play a 
serious role um, in uh, looking at bullying and looking at violence in our schools and addressing that. Um, and the term zero, zero tolerance um, actually comes from um, the provincial government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that is, um, that is within policies across all boards across the province. Uh, here in Hamilton, uh, the next steps for the school board is to, to begin the internal review. So the police investigation will conclude, and at that point, the board of trustees will pass a motion to conduct an internal review to look at policies. But there also has to be a, a wider uh, response from the province in terms of what tools we have available. There needs to be a wider response from the community where we pull in and pull together all the community groups that have been coming forward. And there needs to be an opportunity for all of our parents and for all of our students to have feedback, to have input into what needs to be done. Because all of us have to work together when it comes to bullying and when it comes to violence. Alex, uh, the concern, and I heard it last night, of course, from a number of people that attended the rally, uh, is that Devin's mom felt like the board let her down, the school let her down, the community let her down. Uh, that's got to be a call to action for the board to, to say, look, at we've, as you mentioned, there's going to be a review, but clearly there's going to have to be some changes because uh, this shouldn't have happened. It did happen. And, and we've got to, I think, look at this whole system right now and say we've got to do a better job here. Where, where are the holes? Where are the problems? And let's, let's address that. I, I get your point. I know some people are saying, oh, come on, don't start pushing it off onto another level of government. But as you and I have talked about before, when, when you know, cutbacks come back from, from provincial governments, it has an impact on, on the resources that you're allowed to, and able and to, to deliver. So that does have to be part of the conversation. But this has to happen sooner than later. It has to happen now. Absolutely. We all have a role to play. And that's where you're hearing um, at this point from uh, the police are, are conducting their investigation. The school board will then move to conduct their review. And then that's also where we will will need the province to to look at what does zero tolerance against violence mean? What does that look like? What are the tools that we have at hand? Um, and looking at the different resources that we provide our schools and provide our communities to support our youth. Our, our youth are impacted by, by so many different factors, uh, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it is... Um, uh, the violence that, that happens within communities, bullying that happens within communities, um, drug, drug and alcohol. There's so many different factors that, that impact our youth and their decisions and what is brought into the classroom. We need to ensure that schools are equipped with the proper resources. We also need to ensure that um, our school boards are um uh, that we have the resources in place, but also the policies that are going to be effective. And at the end of the day, that we are able to adequately support all of our youth. It is the hardest phone call um, or for, for, any, um, for any school. And it's also the hardest conversation for, for any parent when they hear from their own child that their, their child is being bullied. It's also a difficult conversation when a parent hears that their, their child has been bullying. And so how we work to support these individuals and how we work to support our youth who are at a critical stage of development so that they can, can grow and learn and, uh, and so we can build inclusive school communities. Lots more to do on this and lots more conversation and dialogue, obviously. But uh, right now we're 
uh, as a community morning. Alex, thank you so much for this. Uh, we'll stay in touch over the next couple of day, weeks and months as this unrolls. Appreciate your thank time you, today. Bill. Alex Johnstone, of course, the uh, chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.